Angel Gabriel appearing to Mary from the Synoptic Commentaries by John Calvin. Luke 1, verses 26 to 33. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and a virgin's name was Mary. And the angel coming unto her said, Hell, Thou who hast found favor, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she had seen him, she was agitated by his address and was considering what that salutation must be. And the angel said to her, Fear not, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you shall conceive in your womb and shall bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He shall be great and shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of David his father, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. Now in the sixth month, it was a wonderful dispensation of the divine purpose and far removed from the ordinary judgment of men, that God determined to make the beginning of the generation of the herald more illustrious than that of his own son. The prophecy respecting John was published in the temple and universally known. Christ is promised to a virgin in an obscure town of Judea, and this prophecy remains buried in the breast of a young woman. But it was proper that even from the birth of Christ that saying should be fulfilled. It pleased God by foolishness to save them that believe. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 21 The treasure of this mystery was committed by him to a virgin in such a manner that at length, when the proper time came, it might be communicated to all the godly. It was, I own, a mean kind of guardianship, but whether for trying the humility of faith or restraining the pride of the ungodly, it was the best adapted. Let us learn, even when the reason does not immediately appear, to submit modestly to God. And let us not be ashamed to receive instruction from her who carried in her womb Christ, the eternal wisdom of God. There is nothing which we should more carefully avoid than the proud contempt that would deprive us of the knowledge of the inestimable secret which God has purposely hid from the wise and prudent and revealed to the humble and to babes, Luke 10, verse 21. It was, I think, for the same reason that he chose a virgin betrothed to a man. The marriage was a veil held out before the eyes of the world that he who was commonly supposed to be the son of Joseph, Luke 3, verse 23, might at length be believed and acknowledged by the godly to be the son of God. Yet the entrance of Christ into the world was not destitute of glory, for the splendor of his Godhead was manifested from the commencement by his heavenly Father. Angels announced that a Savior was born, but their voice was only heard by the shepherds and traveled no further. One miracle, everywhere published by the wise men who came from the east, Matthew 2 verse 1, that they had seen a star which proclaimed the birth of the highest king, may have been highly celebrated. Yet we see how God kept his son as it were in concealment until the time of his full manifestation arrived, and then erected for him a platform that he might be beheld by all. The participle, which is employed by the evangelist, signifies that the virgin had then been engaged to her bridegroom, but was not yet given as a wife to her husband. For it was customary among Jewish parents to keep their daughters some time at home, 
after they had been betrothed to men. Otherwise, the law relating to the seduction of a betrothed damsel in Deuteronomy 22 verse 23 would have been unnecessary. Luke says that Joseph was of the house of David, for families are usually reckoned by the names of the men, but on this point we shall speak more fully in another place. Verse 28. Hail you who have obtained favor. The angel's commission being of an astonishing and almost incredible description, he opens it with a commendation of the grace of God. And certainly, since our limited capacities admit too slender a portion of knowledge for comprehending the vast greatness of the works of God, our best remedy is to elevate them to meditation on its boundless grace. A conviction of the divine goodness is the entrance of faith. The angel probably observed this order that after preparing the heart of the virgin by meditation on the grace of God, he may enlarge it to receive an incomprehensible mystery. For the participle which Luke employs denotes the undeserved favor of God. This appears more clearly from the epistle to the Ephesians in chapter 1 verse 6 where speaking of our reconciliation to God. Paul says God has made us accepted in the beloved. That is, he has received into his favor and embraced with kindness us who were formerly his enemies. The angel adds, the Lord is with you to those on whom he has once bestowed his love. God shows himself gracious and kind, follows and crowns him with loving kindness. Psalm 103 verse 4. Next comes a third clause that she is blessed among women. Blessing here is put down as a result and proof of the divine kindness. The word blessed does not, in my opinion, mean worthy of praise, but rather means happy. So Paul often supplicates for believers first grace and then peace. Romans 1 verse 7, Ephesians 1 verse 2. That is, every kind of blessings implying that we shall then be truly happy and rich when we are beloved by God, from whom all blessings proceed. But if Mary's Happiness, righteousness, and life flow from the undeserved love of God. If her virtues and all her excellence are nothing more than the divine kindness, it is the height of absurdity to tell us that we should seek from her what she derives from another quarter in the same manner as ourselves. What extraordinary ignorance have the papists, by an enchanter's trick, changed their salutation into a prayer and have carried their folly so far that their preachers are not permitted in the pulpit to implore the grace of the Spirit except through their Hail Mary. But not only are these words a simple congratulation, they unwarrantably assume an office which does not belong to them, and which God committed to none but an angel. Their silly ambition leads them into a second blunder, for they salute a person who is absent. Verse 29. When she had seen him, she was agitated. Luke does not say that she was agitated by the presence of the angel, but by his address. Why then does he also mention his presence? The reason I think is this. Perceiving in the angel something of heavenly glory, she was seized with sudden dread arising out of reverence for God. She was agitated because she felt that she had received a salutation not from a mortal man, but from an angel of God. But Luke does not say that she was so agitated as to have lost recollection. 
On the contrary, he mentions an indication of an attentive and composed mind. Or he afterwards adds, and was considering what that salutation would be, that is, what was its object, and what was its meaning. It instantly occurred to her that the angel had not been sent for a trifling purpose. This example reminds us first that we ought not to be careless observers of the works of God, and secondly, that our consideration of them ought to be regulated by fear and reverence. Verse 30. Fear not, Mary. He bids her lay aside fear. Let us always remember what arises from the weakness of the flesh, that whenever the feeblest ray of the divine glory bursts upon us, we cannot avoid being alarmed. When we become aware in good earnest of the presence of God, we cannot think of it apart from its effects. Accordingly, as we are all amenable to a tribunal, fear gives rise to trembling until God manifests himself as a father. The Holy Virgin saw in her own nation such a mass of crimes that she had good reason for dreading heavier punishments. To remove this fear, the angel declares that he has come to certify and announce an inestimable blessing. The Hebrew idiom, Thou hast found favor, is used by Luke instead of God has been merciful to you. For a person is said to find favor not when he has sought it, but when it has been freely offered to him. Instances of this are so well known that it would be of no use to quote them. Verse 31. Behold, you shall conceive in your womb. The angel adapts his words first to Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah 7 verse 14, and next to other passages of the prophets with a view of affecting more powerfully the mind of the virgin. For such prophecies were well known and highly esteemed among the godly. At the same time, it ought to be observed that the angel did not merely speak in private to the ear of the virgin, but brought glad tidings, Evangelion, which were shortly afterwards to be published throughout the whole world. It was not without the purpose of God that the agreement between ancient prophecies and the present message respecting the manifestation of Christ was so clearly pointed out. The word conceive is enough to set aside the dream of Marcion and Menachius, for it is easy to gather from it that Mary brought forth not an ethereal body or phantom, but the fruit which she had previously conceived in her womb. You shall call his name Jesus. The reason of the name is given by Matthew. For he shall save his people from their sins, Matthew 1, verse 21. And so the name contains a promise of salvation and points out the object for which Christ was sent by the Father into the world. As he tells us that he came not to judge the world, but to save the world, John 12, verse 47. Let us remember that not by the will of men, but by the command of God, was his name given to him by the angel that our faith may have its foundation not in earth, but in heaven. It is derived from the Hebrew word, salvation, from which comes, signifies to save. It is a waste of ingenuity to contend that it differs from the Hebrew name, Yahshua, Jehoshua, or Joshua. The rabbins everywhere write the word, Jesu, and they do this with evident malice. 
They may not bestow on Christ an honorable name, but on the contrary may insinuate that he is some pretended Jew. Their manner of writing it accordingly is of no more importance than the barking of a dog. The objection that it is far beneath the dignity of the Son of God to have a name in common with others might equally apply to the name Christ or anointed. But the solution of both is easy. What was exhibited in shadow under the law is fully and actually manifested in the Son of God. Or what was in a figure is in him a substance. There is another objection of as little weight. They assert that the name of Jesus is not worthy of veneration and awe, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, Philippians 2 verses 9 and 10, if it does not belong exclusively to the Son of God. For Paul does not attribute to him a magical name as if in his very syllables majesty resided, but his language simply means that Christ has received from the Father the highest authority to which the whole world ought to submit. Let us then bid adieu to such imaginations and know that the name Jesus was given to Christ in order that believers may be instructed to seek in him what had formerly been shadowed out under the law. Verse 32. He shall be great. Angel had said the same thing about John the Baptist and yet did not intend to make him equal to Christ. But the Baptist is great in his own class, while the greatness of Christ is immediately explained to be such as raises him above all creatures. For to him alone this belongs as his own peculiar prerogative to be called the Son of God. So the Apostle argues, unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee, Hebrews 1 verse 5. Angels and kings, I admit, are sometimes dignified with his title in scripture, but they are denominated in common the sons of God on account of their high rank. But it is perfectly clear and certain that God distinguishes his own son from all the others when he thus addresses him particularly. Thou art my son, Psalm 2 verse 7. Christ is not confounded either with angels or with men so as to be one of the multitude of the sons of God. But what is given to him no other has a right to claim. The sons of God are kings, not certainly by natural right, but because God has bestowed on them so great an honor. Even angels have no right to this distinction except on account of their high rank among creatures, and subordination to the great head, Ephesians 1.21. We too are sons, but by adoption, which we obtain by faith, for we have it not from nature. Christ is the only Son, the only begotten of the Father, John 1, verse 14. The future tense of the verb, he shall be called the Son of the Highest, is tortured by that filthy dog, Servetus, to prove that Christ is not the eternal Son of God, but began to be considered when he took upon him our flesh. This is an intolerable slander, he argues that Christ was not the Son of God before he appeared in the world clothed with flesh, because the angel says he shall be called. On the contrary, I maintain the words of the angel mean nothing more than that he, who had been the Son of God from eternity, would be manifested as such in the flesh. For to be called denotes clear knowledge. There is a wide difference between the two statements that Christ began to be the Son of God, which he was not before, and that he was manifested among men in order that they might know him to be the person who had been formerly promised. 
Certainly, in every age, God has been addressed by his people as a father. And hence it follows, that he had a son in heaven from whom and by whom men obtained a sonship. For men take too much upon them if they venture to boast of being the sons of God in any other respect than as members of the only begotten Son, John 1.18. Certain it is that confidence in the Son alone as mediator inspired the Holy Fathers with confidence to employ so honorable an address. The more complete knowledge of which we are now speaking is elsewhere explained by Paul to mean that we are now at liberty not only to call God our Father, but boldly to cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8, verse 15, Galatians 4, verse 6. The Lord God will give unto him the throne of his father David. We have said that the angel borrows from the prophets the titles which he bestows on Christ in order that the Holy Virgin might more readily acknowledge him to be the Redeemer formally promised to the fathers. Whenever the prophets speak of the restoration of the church, they direct all the hope of believers to the kingdom of David, so that it became a common maxim among the Jews that the safety of the church would depend on the prosperous condition of that kingdom, and that nothing was more fitting and suitable to the office of the Messiah than to raise up anew the kingdom of David. Accordingly, the name of David is sometimes applied to the Messiah. They shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, Jeremiah 30, verse 9. Again, my servant David shall be a prince among them, Ezekiel 34, verse 24, Ezekiel 37, verse 24. They shall seek the Lord their God and David their king, Hosea 3, verse 5. The passages in which he is called the son of David are sufficiently well known. In a word, the angel declares that in the person of Christ would be fulfilled the prediction of Amos. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen. Amos 9 verse 11. Verse 33. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob. As salvation was promised, in a peculiar manner to the Jews, the covenant having been made with her father Abraham in Genesis 17 verse 7. And Christ, as Paul informs us, was a minister of the circumcision, Romans 15 verse 8. The angel properly fixes reign in that nation as his peculiar seat and residence. But this is in perfect accordance with other predictions which spread and extend the kingdom of Christ to the utmost limits of the earth. By a new and wonderful adoption, God is admitted into the family of Jacob the Gentiles, who formerly were strangers, though in such a manner that the Jews as a firstborn held a preferable rank. As it is said, the Lord shall send the rod of his strength out of Zion. Psalm 110, verse 3. Christ's throne was, therefore, erected among the people of Israel, that he might then subdue the whole world. All whom he has joined by faith to the children of Abraham are accounted the true Israel. Though the Jews, by their revolt, have separated themselves from the church of God, yet the Lord will always preserve till the end some remnants. Romans 11, verse 5. For his calling is without repentances, Romans 11.29. The body of the people is apparently cut off. But we ought to remember the mystery of which Paul speaks in Romans 11.25, that God will at length gather some of the Jews out of the dispersion. Meanwhile, the church which is scattered throughout the whole world is the spiritual house of Jacob, for it drew its origin from Zion. Forever.
The angel points out the sense in which it was so frequently predicted by the prophets that the kingdom of David would be without end. It was only during his own reign and that of Solomon that it remained wealthy and powerful. Rehoboam, the third successor, hardly retained a tribe and a half. The angel now declares that, when it has been established in the person of Christ, it will not be liable to destruction. And to prove this, employs the words of Daniel in 7.14, of his kingdom there shall be no end. Though the meaning of the words is that God will forever protect and defend the kingdom of Christ and the church, so that it shall not perish on the earth, as long as the sun and moon endure, Psalm 72, verses 5 and 17. Yet, its true perpetuity relates to the glory to come. So then believers follow each other in this life by an uninterrupted succession till at length they are gathered together in heaven where they shall reign without end. Luke chapter 1, verses 34 to 38. And Mary said to the angel, How shall this be, since I know not a man? And the angel answering said to her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon you, and the power of the highest shall overshadow you. Wherefore also the holy thing which shall be born shall be called the Son of God. And behold, Elizabeth your cousin, even she has conceived a son in her old age. And this is the sixth month to her who was called barren. For no word shall be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, the handmaid of the Lord, be it to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Verse 34. How shall this be? The Holy Virgin appears to confine the power of God within as narrow limits as Zacharias had formerly done. For what is beyond the common order of nature she concludes to be impossible. She reasons in this manner, I know not a man. How then can I believe that what you tell me will happen? We ought not to give ourselves very much trouble until quit her of all blame. She ought immediately to have risen by faith to the boundless power of God, which is not at all lettered to natural means but sways the whole world. Instead of this, she stops at the ordinary way of generation. Still, it must be admitted that she does not hesitate or inquire in such a manner as to lower the power of God to the level of her senses, but is only carried away by a sudden impulse of astonishment to put this question. That she readily embrace a promise may be concluded from this, that though many things presented themselves to the opposite side, she has no doubt but on one point. She might instantly have objected, where was that throne of David? For all the rank of kingly power had been long ago set aside, and all the luster of royal descent had been extinguished. Unquestionably, if she had formed her opinion of the manner according to the judgment of the flesh, she would have treated as a fable what the angel had told her. There can be no doubt that she was fully convinced of the restoration of the church, and easily give way to what the flesh would have pronounced to be incredible. And then it is probable that the attention of the public was everywhere directed at that time to the prediction of Isaiah, in which God promises that he would raise up a rod out of the despised stem of Jesse, Isaiah 11, verse 1. That persuasion of the kindness of God, which had been formed in the mind of the virgin, let her to admit in the fullest manner that she had received a message as to raising up anew the throne of David. 
If it be objected that there was also another prediction, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, Isaiah 7 verse 14. Our reply that this mystery was then very imperfectly understood. True, the fathers expected the birth of a king, under whose reign the people of God would be happy and prosperous, but the manner of its accomplishment lay concealed, as if it had been hidden by a veil. There is no wonder, therefore, if the Holy Virgin puts a question on the subject before unknown to her. The conjecture which some have drawn from these words that she had formed a vow of perpetual virginity is unfounded and altogether absurd. She would in that case have committed treachery by allowing herself to be united to a husband and would have poured contempt on the holy covenant of marriage, which could not have been done without mockery of God. Although the papists have exercised barbarous tyranny on this subject, yet they have never proceeded so far as to allow the wife to form a vow of continence at her own pleasure. Besides, it is an idle and unfounded supposition that a monastic life existed among the Jews. We must reply, however, to another objection, that the virgin refers to the future, and so declares that she will have no intercourse with a man. The probable and simple explanation is that the greatness or rather majesty of the subject made so powerful impression on her that all her senses were bound and locked up in astonishment. When she is informed that the Son of God will be born, she imagines something unusual, and for that reason leaves conjugal intercourse out of view. Hence she breaks out in amazement. How shall this be? And so God graciously forgives her, and replies kindly and gently by the angel, because in a devout and serious manner, and with admiration of a divine work, she had inquired how that would be, which she was convinced went beyond the common and ordinary course of nature. In a word, this question was not so contrary to faith, because it arose rather from admiration than from distrust. Verse 35. The Holy Ghost shall come upon you. The angel does not explain the manner so as to satisfy curiosity, which there was no necessity for doing. He only leads a virgin to contemplate the power of the Holy Spirit and to surrender herself silently and calmly to his guidance. The word shall come upon denotes that this would be an extraordinary work in which natural means have no place. The next clause is added by way of exposition and the power of the highest shall overshadow you, where the Spirit may be regarded as the essential power of God whose energy is manifested and exerted in the entire government of the world, as well as in miraculous events. There is an elegant metaphor in the word overshadow, the power of God, by which he guards and protects his own people is frequently compared in Scripture to a shadow, Psalm 17 verse 8, Psalm 57 verse 1, Psalm 91, verse 1. But it appears to have another and peculiar meaning in this passage. The operation of the Spirit would be secret, as if an intervening cloud did not permit it to be beheld by the eyes of men. Now as God, in performing miracles, withholds from us a manner of his proceedings, so what he chooses to conceal from us ought to be viewed on our part with seriousness and adoration. Therefore also, the holy thing which shall be born. This is a confirmation of the preceding clause, for the angel shows that Christ must not be born by ordinary generation, that he may be holy, 
and that he may be the Son of God, that is, that in holiness and glory he may be high above all creatures and may not hold an ordinary rank among men, heretics, who imagine that he became the Son of God after his human generation, seize on the particle, therefore, as meaning that he would be called the Son of God because he was conceived in a remarkable manner by the power of the Holy Spirit. But this is a false conclusion. For though he was manifested to be the Son of God in the flesh, it does not follow that he was not the Word, begotten of the Father before the ages. On the contrary, he who had been the Son of God and his eternal God had appeared also as the Son of God in human flesh. This passage not only expresses the unity of person in Christ, but at the same time points out that in clothing himself with human flesh, Christ is the Son of God. As the name Son of God belonged to the divine essence of Christ from the beginning, so now it is applied unitedly to both natures because the secret and heavenly manner of generation has separated him from the ordinary rank of men. In other passages, indeed, with a view of asserting that he is truly man, he calls himself the Son of Man, John 5, verse 27. But the truth of his human nature is not inconsistent with his deriving peculiar honor above all others from his divine generation. Having been conceived out of the ordinary way of nature by the Holy Spirit, this gives us good reason for growing confidence that we may venture more freely to call God our Father, because his only Son, in order that we might have a Father in common with him, choose to be our brother. It ought to be observed also that Christ, because he was conceived by a spiritual power, is called the Holy Seed. For as it was necessary that he should be a real man in order that he might expiate our sins and vanquish death and Satan in our flesh, so was it necessary, in order to his cleansing others, that he should be free from every spot and blemish. 1 Peter 1 verse 19 Though Christ was formed of the seed of Abraham, it had contracted no defilement from a sinful nature. For the Spirit of God kept him pure from the very commencement, and it was done not merely that he might abound in personal holiness, but chiefly that he might sanctify his own people. The manner of conception, therefore, assures us that we have a mediator, separate from sinners, Hebrews 7, verse 26. Verse 36, And behold, Elizabeth, your cousin, by an instance taken from her own relatives, the angel encourages the faith of Mary to expect a miracle. If neither the barrenness nor the old age of Elizabeth could prevent God from making her a mother, there was no better reason why Mary should confine her view within the ordinary limits of nature. When she beheld such a demonstration of divine power in her cousin, he mentions expressly the sixth month, because in the fifth month a woman usually feels a child quicken in the womb. So the sixth month removes all doubt. True, Mary ought to have such a reliance on the bare word of God as to require no support to her faith from any other quarter. But, to prevent further hesitation, the Lord condescends to strengthen his promise by this new aid. With equal indulgence does he cheer and support us every day, nay, with greater indulgence because our faith is weaker, that we may not doubt his truth. Testimonies to confirm it are brought by him from every direction. A question arises how Elizabeth, who is of the daughters of Aaron, verse 5, 
and Mary, who was descended from the stock of David, could be cousins. This appears to be at variance with the law which prohibited women from marrying into different tribes from their own. Number 36.6. With respect to the law, if we look at its object, it forbade those intermarriages only which might remove inheritance from tribe to tribe. Number 36.7. No such danger existed if any woman of the tribe of Judah married a priest to whom an inheritance could not be conveyed. The same argument would hold if a woman of the tribe of Levi passed into another tribe. It is possible that the mother of the Holy Virgin might be descended from the family of Aaron, and so her daughter might be cousin to Elizabeth. Verse 37 For no word shall be impossible with God. If we choose to take word in a strict and native sense, the meaning is that God will do what he has promised, for no hindrance can resist his power. The argument will be God has promised, and therefore he will accomplish it. For we ought not to allege any impossibility in opposition to his word. But as the word often means a thing in the idiom of the Hebrew language, which the evangelists followed, though they wrote in Greek, we explain it more simply that nothing is impossible with God. We ought always indeed to behold it as a maxim, that they wander widely from the truth who, at their pleasure, imagine the power of God to be something beyond his word. For we want always to contemplate his boundless power, that it may strengthen our hope and confidence. But it is idle and unprofitable and even dangerous to argue what God can do unless we also take into account what he resolves to do. The angel does hear what God frequently does in scripture, employs a general doctrine to confirm one kind of promise. This is a true and proper use of a general doctrine to apply its scattered promises to the present subject whenever we are uneasy or distressed. For so long as they retain their general form, they make little impression upon us. We need not wonder if Mary is reminded by the angel of the power of God, for our distrust of it diminishes very greatly our confidence in the promises. I'll acknowledge in words that God is almighty. But if he promises anything beyond what we are able to comprehend, we remain in doubt. Whence come this, but from our ascribing to his power nothing more than what our senses receive? Thus Paul, committing the faith of Abraham, says that he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that what he had promised he was able also to perform, Romans 4, 20 and 21. In another passage, speaking of the hope of eternal life, he sets before him the promise of God. I know, says he, whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him, Second Timothy 1 verse 12. This may seem to be a small portion of faith, for no man, however wicked, openly denies God's claim to be almighty. But he who has the power of God firmly and thoroughly fixed in his heart will easily surmount the other obstacles which present themselves to faith. It ought to be observed, however, that the power of God is viewed by true faith. If I may use the expression, it's efficacious. For God is and wishes to be acknowledged as powerful that by the accomplishment itself he may prove his faithfulness. Verse 38 Behold, the handmaid of the Lord. The Holy Virgin does not allow herself to dispute any further. 
And yet many things might unquestionably have obtruded themselves to repress that faith and even to draw off her attention from what is said to her by the angel. But she stops the entrance of opposing arguments and compels herself to obey. This is a real proof of faith. When we restrain our minds and, as it were, hold them captive, so that they dare not reply this or that to God. For boldness and disputing, on the other hand, is a mother of unbelief. These are weighty expressions. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. For she gives and devotes herself unreservedly to God, that he may freely dispose of her according to his pleasure. Unbelievers withdraw from his hand and as far as lies in their power, obstruct his work. But faith presents us before God that we may be ready to yield obedience. But if the Holy Virgin was a handmaid of the Lord because she yielded herself submissively to his authority, there cannot be worse obstinacy than to fly from him and to refuse that obedience which he deserves and requires. In a word, as faith alone makes us obedient servants to God and gives us up to his power, so unbelief makes us rebels and deserters. Be it unto me. This clause may be interpreted in two ways. Either the Holy Virgin, leaving her former subject, betakes herself suddenly to prayers and supplications, or she proceeds in the same strain to yield and surrender herself to God, follows cheerfully where he calls, trusts also to his promise, and not only expects but eagerly desires its accomplishment. We must also observe that she is convinced on the word of the angel because she knows that it proceeded from God. Value in its credit, not with reference to him, who was its messenger, but with reference to him, who was its author.